We must be honest with each other and with ourselves. Too much of what's happening in our country today is not normal. A Johnny and the bad Phyrexians represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Now, I want to be very clear, very clear up front. <clears throat> not every Phyrexian, not even the majority of Phyrexians is a bad Phyrexian. Not every Phyrexian embraces their extreme ideology. I know because I've been able to work with these mainstream Phyrexians. But there's no question the Phyrexian swarm of today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by a Johnny and the bad Phyrexians. And that is a threat to Dominaria. Welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. I am your host, Andy. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Anthony, constructor of podcast studios, Maddox. I did very little of the work, but we have this cool podcast studio now. You did some of it. and did a little uh, bit. Does it feel good to be in a room that you had a, a part of building? It feels great. It's cozy down here. In a good way? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. I'm glad. Got a cozy new podcast studio. I hope the uh, audio quality maybe takes a little bit of a improvement though i think it's pretty okay already so uh that's very exciting it's first first episode of the new studio it's very exciting for me wow whole new chapter for lucky paper radio we have no time to get into detail about our studio though anthony because we have to talk about dominari united this is the first of our three set review episodes that we do for every new set magic comes out with as a reminder this episode our first is going to be all about the mechanics and themes of the set talking about it from a game design perspective not getting in the weeds about power level evaluations or individual contexts where cards might shine or not shine. Then our next episode is going to be the cards that Anthony and I are interested in adding to our own cubes. And then finally, the third podcast episode is going to be the community review, which you listener have to take a part in because our survey is live on our website. Yeah, so like we do for every set, we've got a survey where you can tell us what cards you're interested in, potentially including some of your cubes, and how optimistic you are about their, you know, staying in your cube long term. And then we're going to take all that data, we're going to publish it, we're going to aggregate it, make some cool data visualizations, write an article, and make a podcast about what the community is interested in. I've seen a lot of people this time around, Anthony, be surprised that the website automatically pulls in your additions from Cube Cobra. So a good time to remind people that if you've already made changes to your cube, either the main deck or the maybe board on Cube Cobra, and you paste the link into the survey, it will automatically pull all those cards in for you, and you can just rate them without having to pick them out individually. So easy. Or you can just paste a list if you have a list in a text file somewhere, which thank you to a couple people on Reddit who pointed out that that was broken. I really appreciate bug reports because uh, I might not know stuff is broken. Was it entirely broken? It was It was uh, broken in a very silly way. I'm not a QA engineer. I don't think of all the things to test. Uh, so thank you to all you Reddit users. Check out our homepage, uh, check out the show notes, or just go directly to luckypaper.co slash survey slash DMU to fill out the survey for this set. We are also accepting voice memo hot takes. So if you have a hot take about a card or a mechanic or anything specific in the set, you want to have your voice heard, you can send that hot take to mail at luckypaper.co. Or if you're connected to me on Discord or Twitter or whatever, you can also send it through DMs there. And uh, we'll put it in our set review episodes. We can get some additional voices on that episode, Anthony, that aren't just ours. People get tired of hearing our voices. I know I do. 
let's just dive right in, Anthony. So we're going to talk about the mechanics. I have some of my cards from my first pre-release pool in front of me here, but I don't happen to have a card with Enlist. So do you want to give us the rules text for Enlist? Sure. So Enlist is a mechanic that goes on creatures and it says, as this creature attacks, you may tap a non-attacking creature you control without summoning sickness. When you do, add its power to this creature's until end of turn. So it's kind of like a combat-focused, I would say an aggressive mechanic. It reminds me a little bit of something like Exalted or maybe something like Exert. It's a very like combat-focused creature mechanic. I think it's primarily in white and a couple other creature-focused colors. But, um, but yeah, Seems, yeah, pretty evenly divided between white, red, and green. There you go. The Naya colors are the enlist colors in this set. Did you play against any enlist cards at our pre-release? I did, and I very embarrassingly forgot that it only pumps power and uh, made some, it's, it's, you know, new cards. You're going to make some mistakes in the pre-release. I mean, a good thing to know, it does only pump power, so toughness remains unchanged. My first impression of this mechanic when I saw it, I had a glimmer of incredible excitement about this mechanic, because as we were watching the set announcement stream or whatever they call it, where they're going over the new mechanics and new cards for the first time on Twitch, they showed a piece of the new mechanic, and I got really excited because I thought you could tap any creature, not just creatures without summoning sickness, in a way that, like, you know, you can play a creature and then immediately crew a vehicle is a, is a play pattern I've really enjoyed in my cube, where you can kind of give your cards pseudo-haste, but not full haste, because you have to have this kind of two-piece combo to make that work. And then when I saw the fact that you could only tap things that weren't summoning sick, I immediately became just less interested in it. I mean, obviously, it's less powerful, but even that aside, right, even if you rebalanced all the cards so that they cost a little more mana or whatever, I think I'd be a lot more excited about this mechanic if you could actually tap non-summoning sick creatures to pump up your attackers. Yeah, I mean, I thought maybe a similar thing when I saw it. So I was like, wow, this card is kind of insane. It's like, uh, I think the first one they previewed was a five mana, four, five. But then, yeah, you just tap another like three, three, and suddenly you're attacking for, you know, seven, eight power, uh, depending on what you've got on the board. That's kind of nuts. But then really, it's not giving you, like you're saying, with a vehicle that like extra power. It's it's only letting you attack with the amount of power that you could have attacked with previously. Right. With some exceptions like uh, pacifism, things like that. Uh, it's just allowing you to sort of like banding, just combine the powers of two creatures onto one body. Body, which is definitely always interesting because it means that, you know, if you end up getting into a double block or something like that, you're kind of trading your one creature for multiples, like by being able to combine that power. So I do like that flexibility of it just changing the way that your potential attacks look. It does get very complicated. I mean, I had an opponent that had an enlist focused deck at pre-release last night, and there were a lot of combat steps where like they have three creatures, two of which have enlist, I have three creatures, and they're like in the tank, trying to figure out which combination of creatures they're supposed to attack with versus enlist with. Combat is already a very complicated part of magic, and when you add in this layer of now you can change the permutations of what's attacking and blocking uh, in this way, I think it does get a lot more complicated. Obviously, this mechanic gets a lot better with keywords, so if you're you know putting that power on a creature that has trample, that particular card was a, was a bit of a pain in my butt last night. There's a 3-4 creature with trample and enlist, and just being able to throw all your power on a trampler caused me some issues at pre-release. Keywords get a lot better, and yeah, I think in general the play pattern in this is going to be that you're going to want to essentially throw all of your power into one creature, ideally with a keyword, and then if that creature trades with a couple blockers, then you know you essentially traded for all the power of creatures you have, but you got to keep those creatures that enlisted instead of actually losing them in combat. Yeah, and I think that this mechanic, I mean, really, I would say all the mechanics in this set are really kind of open-ended. There's not like, there are no mechanics that we've seen in the past where it's like, oh, when you have a card that does this, you want as many of these as possible, or, you know, it gets better in multiples because they the cards care about doing a certain thing. You know, like we'd see with tribal or like lesson learn mechanics like that. This is just like, they're, all cards care about creatures and getting in combat. Not all cards, enough cards uh, in most kinds of cubes you're going to see, so... Yeah, I mean, there's there's no reason it, w it would be, like, inappropriate to include an Alyst card in any cube, I think. 
Yeah, and uh, I think the other thing to look out for here from like a cube design perspective uh, that you can kind of key off on is any creature that has a trigger when it becomes tapped That's true, or yeah. untapped. Uh, a lot of times in sets, those creatures are balanced with the expectation that you know, you're going to have to be attacking with that creature in order to tap and untap it, which is an inherent risk. And now if you have another way to tap and untap that creature, you might be able to get some benefit off of it. Like I'm thinking of the inspired mechanic from right, original yeah. Theros, which triggers on untap. Um, you know, those same things work with vehicles uh, in a similar way, but if you want to try something different, then Enlist is also available to you. Yeah, I think that actually could be a really cool theme. Like, I think we've seen more and more ways like vehicles to just tap creatures outside of combat. So I could definitely see that turning into a whole theme into itself. Yeah. Yeah, so for me, this is not the most exciting mechanic just because it's really just kind of like a fiddly way to like change the way your power is attacking. It doesn't give you any additional tempo. It doesn't give you any additional power. It's just kind of moving things around that were already resources available to you. Whereas the things that excite me the most about uh, these kind of combat focused aggressive mechanics are when I do get some advantage in one of those axes and I get to kind of try and leverage that. So not my favorite mechanic, kind of boring to me, but uh, maybe it's maybe it's for you, listener. I also think, you know, we've talked about, like, mentor versus training, where similar mechanics, but one of them will power the creature itself up versus powering up another creature. And I definitely like the mechanics that let one creature power up another a little bit more, just because you get the opportunity to, like, mix and match and, like, combine right. one keyword with, an- with another, or, you know, keyword plus added power. Here... You know, you said keywords are relevant, but it's only the keywords that are on these specific cards. Uh, right, you're not going to be able know, to enlist onto your Swiftblade Vindicator or whatever, right. which would so. make this mechanic perhaps a lot more interesting, at least for the long tail of cube designs that you could possibly combine these cards with. Yeah, I think interesting from like my personal taste perspective, where I really like those kinds of mechanics that let you, you know, mix and match and build your own kind of for sure powerful creature in combat. Yeah. The next mechanic is Read Ahead. We have Sagas returning. We've talked about Sagas on the show before, so we won't go too deep into that. But the new mechanic that is being introduced to Sagas is called Read Ahead. And the rules text is, choose a chapter and start with that many lore counters. Add one after your draw step. Skipped chapters don't trigger. Sacrifice after chapter three or the last chapter. So basically, it's a saga you can play and you can jump right to whichever chapter you would like to trigger. So instead of the saga playing, you know, kind of like a prescriptive planeswalker where you get three different effects in some prescribed order, it now becomes kind of a modal card where you can either have a three-chapter saga that starts on chapter one, a two-chapter saga that starts on chapter two, or just a one-time effect if you essentially choose to take that third chapter trigger. I like this for introducing modality to sagas i like modes i think modes are cool but i gotta say i think one of the things that was really interesting from a design perspective about sagas was that they explicitly weren't modal it was like unlike so many other cards that have lots of effects they were not as complicated in the sense that you just kind of played it and you got the effects in a a given order which was also a big part of the flavors of sagas was we're trying to tell this story and now it's just like uh yeah sure you can skip ahead in the story and go right to the end so it's, it's an interesting mechanic from a gameplay perspective because it does give you more options with the sagas you're playing. From a flavor perspective, it, it's kind of a... It's I don't, I don't it's a like it as a flavor weird perspective. Where it's like, okay, here's the whole thing about sagas is that they have some prescriptiveness. It's almost like suspend in a way where you try and like line things up. And when you take that away, it's like, oh, well, now this... Yeah, it's just kind of a modal spell. I, I agree it's a little bit weird, but I think it does play really well, and I think it does open up a lot of design space. Like, I feel like it, it's interesting that a lot of these sagas have kind of marginal effects on the first or second steps, and uh, playing them in the pre-release, it really felt just like, oh, okay, I have this modal spell. Sure, I'll get something else in the future, right. but I'm just going to pick the chapter that's relevant this turn. From a gameplay perspective, I enjoyed playing with the cards. It does definitely make a difference to some types of sagas. So there's the one in this set that is a four mana red rare that has a mini board wipe on, I think, chapter two and then chapter 
three, it gives you a four, four dragon token. And just that particular example of saying, if I'm behind, this can be a kind of a board wipe. I think it does two damage to each creature. Or if I'm ahead and I have creatures I don't want to lose, I can just skip that chapter and go right to turning this into a four mana, four, four flyer, which is plenty good. So it does totally change the design space for sagas where now they can afford to have perhaps conflicting chapters on a saga or chapters that would be very relevant given different board states uh, and not have that card be kind of a mess at the end of the day because it only works in a very narrow narrow use case yeah i mean and there's there's honestly not a ton there are only 10 read ahead sagas in the set uh, i'd be curious to see what else that that new design space really uh, opens up there's not that many list cards either right aren't there only like 11 in list cards i believe uh 11 cards yeah yeah so you know, these mechanics, they show up a lot in the in the set because they're present on a lot of commons, and so that's why they're, like, become a more important part of the actual limited experience. But for the purpose of cube designers, you know, you're looking at, you know, 10 cards and whether you want to include them or not. So it's not a not, not a huge injection of uh, new cards with these mechanics into our available card pool. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a great point just about how these affect limited uh, and a, a cube design to an extent as well because people do play with uh, design with rarity restrictions. But the enlist cards actually appear on a bunch of commons and uncommons. A lot of the sagas are rare. Yeah, sagas are a more complicated card type in general, and I think adding read ahead to them makes them even more complicated. And so the idea of them trying to keep the complexity at higher rarities would, would definitely mean that a lot of those sagas are not going to be lower on the rarity spectrum. Next up, we have a returning mechanic, which is domain. It's a count mechanic, right, Anthony? So it's yeah, it's like an input, not not a uh, a mechanic that does a thing, but it's going to care about some value. Right. The is... thing that it cares about is the uh, the number of different basic land types you have. So that's plains, island, swamp, mountain, forest. So all the domain cards max out at five for the domain input, and the baseline is probably one. I, you could theoretically put it in a deck with a bunch of non-basics that aren't don't have basic land types, and then you get domain zero, but that seems pretty unlikely. I think, you know, realistically, you're expecting a baseline of two, probably domain for most of these cards. What do you think of the domain cards in this set? What do you think of the mechanic overall? Uh, you know, I feel like the the flavor for a domain is a little bit weird. Like, obviously, we're, we're in Dominaria. It cares about lands and adventure, but it's, it's... I don't know if it's that resonant to me. It's just like, how many basic lands do you have? I, I don't really understand the flavor, but mechanically, I think this mechanic is very different depending on context. So, for example, I really like this mechanic in something like Sealed. I think it's fantastic for Retail Sealed because it provides all these interesting deck-building opportunities where you get these small edges for splashing one or two other colors. I know, for example, Anthony, in the regular cube, you have Rick's Mighty Reveler, which is a card I really like. It's a one and a red for a 2-2, two, two, comes into play, you discard a card and draw a card. Or you can pay its spectacle cost, which I believe is two black-red, and then when enters the battlefield, you discard your hand and draw three. So that's a great example of a card that, you know, in the regular cube, a two-mana 2-2 two, two that rummages is a fine base rate. There's plenty of decks in that cube that care about the graveyard and would be looking for a discard outlet anyway. But this potential high ceiling of being able to play a four mana Moldrifter that draws three, which is a really powerful card if you're in the right situation, you're hellbent and you're playing a black red deck. There's a lot of situations, Anthony, where I have played black sources in my deck just because I wanted to be able to play that spectral cost on the Rick's Matty Reveler. And that has this really cool kind of knock-on effect where it's like, okay, well, I'm playing some black sources now. I might take them a little bit in the draft because I'm interested in being able to spectacle with Rick's Mighty Reveler. And then maybe I get a late black card that it's like, okay, maybe I'll splash this as well. Maybe this is also worth it. And I feel like that's how Domain kind of plays in Sealed. It's like, all right, well, I have these cards that care about my number of basic land types. Uh, it's worth noting in this that we do have at common Enter the Battlefield tapped duels that have basic land types, which I think is a great introduction to 
magic as a whole. I mean, we have these yes, snow... It's, it's weird that we haven't seen these in 30 years. It's also very weird to me we got the snow versions of these yeah. before we got the regular versions. But um, we could have a whole conversation about how I think this is really interesting for Rarity Restricted Cubes to actually have access to these cards, even though... Rarity Restriction Cubes don't have access to fetches to go and get these duels specifically. You know, I think it turns things like swamp cycling and plane cycling into really interesting effects and stuff like that. Anyway, I think it leads to very interesting decisions in a retail sealed uh, or retail limited space where you're trying to figure out what the exact combination of fixing lands and splashables you're going to play to get the most power out of your pool. In something like Cube, I'm really not into this mechanic because it feels like it's just going to reward people getting greedier and greedier with their mana bases and push people into that four and five color deck, which in my own cube, I want that deck to be a very sometimes thing. Like maybe one in every three drafts, somebody takes a Golos early, then takes a bunch of lands very highly and can put together a weird four or five color control deck. I don't want it to be a staple of my environment. And a card that I run in my cube is Territorial Kavu, which is the red-green Modern Horizons Kavu with Domain. That's power and toughness equal to the number of lands you control. And that card I have a very love-hate relationship with. I really like it mechanically, but what I want it to be in my cube is I want it to be like a really good Jund card. And the reality is that it's a decent Jund card, a 2-mana 3-3 three, three that, you know, loots or exiles stuff from your graveyard on attack is, is quite good. But... It just gets better and better in the four and five color decks, and I, I don't want the additional motivation for my drafters to, in their Jun deck, also play white or whatever because they have a territorial Kavu. So the domain cards, I'm not interested in myself because I feel like it pushes drafters in a more focused environment into a very specific space. Yeah, I think you're right. So I'm actually going to go back on what I said before a little bit. I think that this mechanic is a little bit less, like... You, can, you can't as easily, I think, put one domain card in any given context. I think it does change a lot depending on the context. So, I mean, if we're looking at my main cube, I do like that kind of splashing, that kind of designing your mana base around these uh, potential for getting a little bit of extra value. But another big part of that is I really like a lot of the fixing lands that also have other utility in that context. So you're going to play your Horizon Canopy type lands that you might just want to have it there as a monocolored land that also can draw a card, but when it incidentally can fix or something, I feel like that's a cool little sort of matrix of effects. But a lot of those lands are not offering basic land types. They don't actually work with domain. So in that context, I think it's not going to work as well. I think there's also a, a very much just a matter of taste if you do like seeing a lot of four or five color decks in your environment or if you sure. really want to push people to be a little bit more focused. And in most contexts, I'm more interested in being a little bit more focused. I will say the one place I do like cards like this that push people into more colors is in my more aggressive strategies. So, you know, a card like Gaia's Might, which is a reprint, it's a combat trick that basically gives plus X plus X where X is domain. That's a card I actually do kind of like because I think aggressive decks tend to skew very few colored by default. And so I'm always taking any opportunity I can to push them into more colors because I think it leads to more interesting deck building. Sometimes I like my cards to push against the natural tendency of drafters or the natural tendency of a particular kind of deck to force people to kind of reevaluate how they actually think about something. And so in the context of an aggressive deck, I do think those kinds of payoffs can be very interesting because it's like, well, I want to play monocolored, but I keep getting all these great, you know, two drops that are good in a many colored deck. So how am I going to square this circle, you know? Sure. Yeah, I guess we should also say that a five-color deck is not, by definition, lack of focus. It can feel that way For in sure. some environments. But also, if we if we actually look at the cards with domain in the set, most of them are green. There's a couple in every in every color, but there's a huge amount of them in green, which just hints at a different kind of focus that, like, the green deck, part of its plan is try and also be playing a lot of colors. 
Yep, and probably splashing a lot of them too. I imagine right. you're probably not very often playing like a full five colors where you have like two of each basic land in your mana base in Dominar United. I imagine you're mostly playing green, maybe a two color green deck, maybe a three, but then you're splashing those last couple colors here and there to get those extra domains and maybe pay those off color kicker costs, Anthony, which takes us to our next mechanic. We have kicker returning. I really like the implementation of Kicker in this set. What's different about Kicker in this set versus Kicker we've seen before? So we've got a couple different things going on. One of them is Off-Color Kicker, which we have seen before, but I think it's been a while, right? I think it's been all the way since, like, Invasion yeah. we've seen Off-Color Kicker. Which is cool. So that just means, you you know, you've got a white card and it's got a red Kicker cost or a white Kicker cost, which I think plays in that similar space we are just talking about of maybe you'll include that in your white deck, but having the option to occasionally be able to get that kicker cost, get that extra value is really cool. And it, it especially means if you don't draw your splash uh, fixing land, your your cards still do stuff. And having that, that higher floor, I think, plays really well. Yeah, I like this so much more than Domain for that type of play pattern. If you're trying to encourage your players to maybe splash creatively here and there, these are the kinds of cards I'd like to do it with, as opposed to cards with Domain that just say, the more colors you have, the better. This is more like, if you can unlock this one other color, you get this additional benefit to casting this spell, but all of them have a perfectly reasonable front end, at least for Dominary United Limited. Yeah, I really love that. The other thing that we're seeing is sort of this variation on multi-kicker, where uh, a card might just have kicker blue and or black, uh, which isn't quite multi-kicker, because multi-kicker you can do it as many times as you want, but it's like uh, you can do up to two different kickers, which again, I think that is sort of similar to some cards from Invasion Block, which obviously this is a little bit of a callback to, but then the, the actual payoff for that is potentially a little bit different, where you might just get the effect twice, or you might get two different effects. Yeah, those those ones feel a little odd to me. It's uh, They're kind of strange, and also the rules text, I think, in some cases reads a little clunkily. That I will definitely agree with. Yeah. So I, I really love the off-color kicker cards. I think they're fantastic. Uh, I also think they're really nicely balanced for Dominar United Limited. And honestly, looking at these cards, I just want to build a new battle box, right? These cards seem Ooh. like perfect inclusions in battle box to me and uh like they do exactly what i want to do in battle box and so maybe i'll get around to doing that eventually making a lower power battle box to uh to take advantage of these cards i don't think many of them if any of them are going to get there in my own cubes but uh, i'm a little bummed by that because i do really like the idea of off color kicker so much when you can have a playable card as a baseline that's maybe a c minus in your environment and then in certain contexts you get to turn that into a b plus or whatever by having that kicker I think it opens up very cool deck building and drafting decisions. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's always the easiest answer is build another cube. I got too many already. I can't keep nah, up. Nah, nah. So something else I think we should point out about Kicker here is that uh, there are a lot of cards with Kicker. There aren't cards that care about Kicker like we've seen in the past that say, you know, whenever you cast a kicked spell, you get a counter on your gecko or whatever it is. Do we only get those in Dominaria? Or did we get those previously? I think we've seen a handful in a core set a couple years ago, and maybe one other time. They were definitely that. It was definitely that in Dominaria. I know that. And, uh, and actually, Zendikar. I can. I can do this. <laughs> can you do? <laughs> My this? brain is. Uh, I know that the red green color combination in original Dominaria was all about kicker. I remember Halar was the. Uh, the uncommon legend that cared about Kicker, and there were a couple other cards there too. Yeah, we also saw in Zendikar Rising the the Drake spell. Oh uh, right, a Drake other Haven. Things that actually cared about Not Drake Haven. Not Drake Haven. That's a different. Uh, Roost of Drakes. <laughs> Roost of Drakes. That sounds Boy, great. Boy, geez, yeah. there's too many magic cards out there, Anthony. Which, you know, that, that's just something to be aware of. It's not like when you're putting Kicker into your decks playing Dominaria Limited, or if you're adding these cards to your cube, it's not like you're building a Kicker archetype where they, again, motivate you to play as many Kicker cards as possible. 
sure, the scalability means you might want a lot of them, but it's not like a, a mechanic that needs support of other kicker cards. It's funny. Kicker is such a clean mechanic. There is the long-running joke that half of all magic mechanics are just kicker. But I do think it doesn't play that well with the kind of enabler payoff combination that you're describing. Like, kicker payoffs yeah. are a little weird to me because the whole value of kicker is that you get to cast this card in two modes, right? The whole value is that you can play it early if you need to play it early, if you have to do something on turn two, or you have to cast a spell for whatever reason. And then in the late game, the spell becomes better, and so you have this, like, modality. And I feel like the, the natural payoff for kicker payoff cards is strange because it's like well i already was going to cast it with mm -hmm. kicker if i could right i was already going to do that and so like paying me off for that doesn't feel like it changes my decisions at all it's just like another thing that happens i almost wonder if it'd be interesting if you had a payoff where it was whenever you cast a spell with kicker that's oh, not kicked i like that something happens because then it's like all right now it's late game would i rather have this trigger on this thing and cares about a kicker or would i rather have this spell kicked as opposed to just being like okay now i guess i get both and i don't know doesn't feel like a decision's being made there so much interesting well maybe we'll see that sometime in the future I wonder if the rules can support that. Probably. I, I would be... Who knows? Magic is a complicated game. So all that to say, yeah, I feel like you don't need to look at this and say, do I want Kicker in my environment? It's just each of these cards is a reasonable card that you can evaluate uh, on its own merit. And I really, again, just love that, that opportunity for cards with a reasonable floor that scale well in this interesting way that presents a deck-building challenge. These are some of my favorite kicker cards we've ever seen. It reminds me of, like, Jilt from Invasion and Probe and Prohibit, which are some of my favorite original kicker cards. And uh, it really feels like a spiritual successor to those cards, which are really great. I didn't love the kicker cards, honestly, as much in Dominaria, for example. I thought they were fine, but uh, most of them were just kind of, like, effect, bigger effect. And it's like, okay, I get it. It works. But here, having this thing where you can either like change mechanically how a card works or you know get this additional benefit for being in multiple colors i think it makes them so much more interesting and dynamic for example a card i really liked playing with yesterday was timely interference it's a blue instant that just says draw a card target creature gets minus one minus zero until end of turn then it has kicker for one and a red if it was kicked then that creature blocks this turn if able and so as a baseline, you have like a very minimal combat trick where you can just like shrink something's power and draw a card for one mana instant speed, which is a fine baseline. I've said before that in a lot of my blue decks, especially if I care about spells at all, I'm pretty happy to play just blue instant speed draw a card. I think that's an okay card. Here, this kicker changes this card completely and turns it from, you know, what is maybe like a dinky little combat trick or whatever into something that very often just says, like, kill a creature, draw a card, uh, because you get to attack into their creature that would otherwise trade with your attacker, timely interference it so that its power gets smaller, your creature lives, and now you get to still draw the card and go off. So that's a really good example of, I think, uh, a cool design space for these cards. Yeah, I'll also say I just appreciate the huge range of different effects. You know, like you're saying in previous Dominaria, we saw a lot of kicker being used in a similar way. Here's your 2-2, you kick it, it also gets two counters. But here we see some of that. We see some creatures that just, you know, get a couple counters if you kick them. We also see some creatures that mill you and then they care about uh, the graveyard in a way in the future. Or, yeah, effects that bring things back from the graveyard or uh, scale removal effects. So I, I just, I really do appreciate that variety. Yeah, I love these cheap ones, too. Like, Runic Shot is also one I really enjoyed playing with. It's a one-white mana sorcery. It's got Kicker for a blue. Just destroys a tap creature, and if the spell was kicked, you scry two. So clean to me. Like, just a nice little blue-white destroy target tap creature, scry two. Fantastic. Just white mana destroy target tap creature. Fine. Play that in some decks. So, I don't know. I love the design of these cards. I'm going to brag a little bit, Anthony. This next mechanic, I guessed exactly before it was revealed. This is Stun Counters. We knew from Mark Rosewater's 
sneak preview that there was going to be a new evergreen counter introduced in this set. And I hazarded a guess that maybe it would be a sort of pacifism-esque counter that would keep a creature from untapping and instead a counter would be removed. And that's exactly what stun counters are. So a stun counter is just a counter that goes onto a creature and the creature does not untap if it has a stun counter on it. Instead, you remove a stun counter and then obviously once the last one's removed, the creature will untap as normal. I think this is a brilliant evergreen counter i really like it i like it so much more than the ability counters we saw on Aquaria, where it just like gives something vigilance gives something death touch it's uh it has no memory issues it's just like really beautiful little uh, self-contained mechanic that i'm really excited to see how, when we get more cards with stun counters on them how they can possibly play in this space yeah, I mean, we see this kind of effect all the time already. So For I think sure. that a lot of the design space has been explored where, you know, you tap a creature, it doesn't untap during its next untap step. It is technically a little bit different in that if you have untap effects or, you know, other ways to, to untap your creatures, it does play slightly differently. But for the most part, like, we've, we've seen that. But I, I definitely agree it's just a lot tidier, especially, you know, we've seen things like Exert where you'd always forget, wait, did I attack with this? Am I supposed to be untapping? So just having some... Well, they had Exert counters in, in Amonkhet. They did, but yeah, they should have just made it actual counter <laughs> yeah they should have yeah and I, the other thing that struck me about this is that you know we've seen again like the tap a creature down we've seen tap a creature down it doesn't untap during controller's next untap step that's really simple it's only one untap step but there's still memory issues with that i've definitely had games where it's like did you do that last turn and you have to roll back and be like yeah that was actually last mm-hmm. turn if there was a complicated combat afterwards for example the turn was kind of long it's like is this not untapping now you have to go kind of figure out which one it was Sometimes if that's on an instant, it can get confusing too because you can tap it down on your opponent's turn and then it's like, when's my next untap step? Um, So there's definitely a couple memory issues with that. And the thing that always struck me about that is that they could never really make those cards tap things down for your next two untap steps because of memory because all those memory issues would be exacerbated dramatically. And so what these stun counters do is allow them to make cards that keep things tapped down for n number of untap steps, which gives a lot more space for that kind of tempo-oriented mechanic to play. Yeah, that's a great point. I wonder if you could also see, like, stun counters used as a resource, or maybe you're stunning your own creatures. I mean, kind of like Exert did, but uh, there could be more space when you have that flexibility to track larger numbers. I feel like this touches really nicely on some of the conversations we've been having about types of removal lately. I was blessed to have a decent amount of removal and interaction in my... I just triggered DSB in my uh, in my sealed deck from last night, my pre-release deck, and I was struck by how many different moments there were where I was trying to decide what's the better type of removal to have here. So, for example, I have some burn spells that would scale with the game, and it's like, all right, well, I'm trying to remove the biggest thing I can with this, but I don't want to like delay for too long to not remove something. And I had Impede Momentum, which is like a very basic stun counter common, it's just two mana sorcery that puts uh, three stun counters on target creature and taps it, and you get to scry one, and. That's the kind of card where if you play some big haymaker that only matters in combat, I'm thinking of like Territorial Morrow, which is the card in this set that could just be a 5-mana 10-10. It's got domain, power on toughness is equal to twice your domain count. That card, if you cast a P-Momentum on it when it's cast in the late game, that's almost exiling it, right? All you have to do is win in the next three turns. That card is completely negated. It doesn't matter at all. And if you do win in the next three turns, then this might as well just said tap that card down forever. It never untaps, right? Which is very powerful. So you might think, okay, this is just great in the late game. But then in the early game... Being able to scry one and just basically say, oh, you played a decent threat on turn two. I don't have an immediate answer for. Let's just, you know, time that thing out for a while. Whereas in the mid game, I was often looking to use actual removal spells to get rid of things. It's very interesting to think about how this type of interaction lined up against the types of threats my opponents were playing and the stage of the game we were at. And so I think it's a great texture to add to the kind of removal we have because it adds more depth on top of the typical like frost links, freeze something down for one turn effect we've seen so many times. 
I mean, it's also nice. One of the things we've talked about different about different types of removal is it's cool when they fit in different contexts, and you actually like during a draft care about prioritizing different effects. Right. And uh, we've seen this also with uh, I'm thinking about from Theros Beyond Death. There was an enchantment that similarly tapped a creature down for four turns if you if your opponent knew how to use the enchantment right. Uh, and that was cool. Where it's like, oh yeah, if you're playing a pretty aggressive deck, this is just a two mana removal spell. But if you're playing a slow deck, this is actually pretty bad. So making these kind of context sensitive and deck sensitive removal spells, I think, is a, a great design space. Yeah, I mean, just the idea of combining some number of lightning strikes with some number of impede momentums. It's like, I'm going to lightning strike the things I can kill with lightning strike. I'm going to impede momentum the big things I can't kill. That's a very like robust removal suite, I think. Yeah. There. It's also worth noting there are actually only three cards with stun counters on them in the set. Because it three? is three. Because it is, uh, it's not a like really a headline mechanic of the set. It's a new evergreen mechanic. So I expect I we guess are going to see yeah, a, the whole point a, a, a is trickle. That it's not like a theme of the set. They're just putting a couple in. Then they're going to put a couple in every set. Right, so yeah, we're probably going to see a, a bunch more uh, as new sets come out. Just like vehicles or whatever. So those are all the sort of key mechanics of the set as far as, you know, new stuff, things that people highlight. But there are a couple other little things buried in the set that aren't necessarily called out specifically. One of the themes that really stands out to me is there's a whole Defender theme. There's a bunch of cards that care about Defender in different ways, whether it's uh, tutoring up Defenders or caring about the number of creature cards that you have with Defender in order to get some effect. Uh, And this is kind of an interesting thing to see return. What do you think from a game design perspective about the Defender Matters thing, though? I mean, do people enjoy playing with walls? Probably not that much, but I, I do appreciate that it is just a kind of strategy that attacks on a very different axis. And I do like that a couple of these designs are somewhat proactive. Wingmantle Chaplain, I think, is especially a kind of interesting design. It's a 4-mana 0-3 with Defender. When it enters the battlefield, create a 1-1 bird for each creature with Defender you control. And also, when you cast another creature with Defender in the future, you still make another bird. So That one is very cool. I, I like the idea it, of clogging up the ground with Defenders yeah. and then ending the game in the air with a horde of birds. I think that's a lot more fun to me than uh, I'm just going to build up this huge pile of defenders and then like mill you out slowly. I wish that one made bird illusion tokens that were the same as the tokens from Murmuring yeah, Mystics so point. that I could put them in my starter deck and it would be beautiful. The token, what do you call it? The token uh, complexity, the token creep, the the variety of different tokens. It's cool and it's flavorful. It's also sometimes a little bit impractical. It's, it's the constant woe of the cube designer. Obviously, it makes tons of sense for each individual set to have flavorful and on-plane tokens, but when you're making a cube and you're like, well, this makes a 1-1, that makes a 1-1, all the other differences are kind of negligible, it can be a bummer. How do you feel about Defenders? Don't like them. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, um, you know, theoretically, uh, a, a cheap wall can act as a sort of scaling removal spell, right? You can just right. say, I'm going to negate the best attacker your opponent has until the attackers get big enough that they actually trade with me in combat. In practice, it's like I would so much rather just have a, a shock or a disfigure just to actually get rid of that thing. Partially because I feel like when you compare those two side by side, having the defender adds to a lot of board complexity, which some players might really enjoy. Some players really like, okay, I have five creatures, you have five creatures. What are my actual attacks here? How do I break this stall? I sometimes find those decisions feel more like not strategic decisions and more just like you got to figure out the right answer. It's here. It's an accounting decision, right? You have to like just spend the time to do the work to figure out all the different permutations of attacking and blocking. And it's not as strategically interesting to me often. And so I like smaller boards when I can, when I can afford them. Uh, And I also like shorter games. And I find that the removal also works proactively, whereas the walls only work defensively. So that wall that can effectively negate their early attacker and kind of acts like a small removal spell only works that way it doesn't work if you're ahead and you want to remove their small blocker to start attacking in your wall doesn't do that obviously so so that's true there's also this other sort of 
defender theme. One of them is obviously just get a bunch of defenders and then you get some scalable effect based on the number of walls. Also, obviously, they could just be part of a, a slower theme where you're just saying, I'm going to play this defender and then attack you in the air. The other option is uh, there's a couple cards that turn your defenders into attackers and yeah. often allow them to attack with their toughness instead of with their with their power, which is kind of a cool theme. I know you've had a Doran the Siege Tower commander deck in the past. Uh, so many years ago. Many but years yes, ago. <laughs> back when Doran was literally the only version of that effect, I, I had that commander deck. It's true. There's a lot of that effect now, and I could definitely imagine cubes that you have enough redundancy for that effect that you actually can draft around it. Whereas, I'm not sure what the lowest rarity, the effect that allows your defenders to attack is if they didn't have a defender appears on, but... We have a, a walking bulwark at Uncommon. Okay, so I would need like at least two of those, let's say, before I'm like drafting around a strategy that requires my defenders to be able to attack. Obviously, in this step, there's other ways to get defender payoffs, and so it's probably just one of many different defender payoffs you would have, but it's the kind of thing where like I don't love mechanics where my whole deck is only turned on by one card, and then it's like, oops, you removed my one card, now I'm back to having nothing but walls, so... It can definitely work, but I have not. I've not done it in a cube before, and I haven't explored exactly how to make that functional. Yeah, and I'll, I'll give a little spoiler of the survey results. These cards are not getting uh, maybe any attention. Not so getting a lot of love. I would be curious to see somebody giving these a try in in a cube, especially again because there is more and more redundancy for that. Is there a better word than just calling it butts first? That kind of mechanic where you attack with your defender creatures. So I, I'd be curious to see if that could work. <laughs> Your next note here, Anthony, is tons of mana sinks. Uh, so this is something that I just noticed looking through the the card list. There are so many creatures with big activated abilities. Uh, we have the kicker spells, obviously provide a whole bunch of that. That's it. I'm just I'm just shocked by how much it seems like there's just always stuff to do in this set. Mana sinks are this kind of thing that I really like to have some of. But something I've said a lot before, which I stand by, is that like your first mana sink is fantastic. You love having your first mana sink, your first place to spend extra mana, so that you're always doing something with your available resources. Your second mana sink is so much worse. The second mana sink in your hand, the second mana sink in your deck, it's like, I already have a place to spend my mana, now I just have a below-rate card, usually. You know, the cards that offer this mana sink, you're, you're paying that cost in some other way. You're not getting as on-rate of an effect uh, if you also have this ability to sink mana into it, so... I really like having some number of mana sinks in all of my environments, just so that's something available to my drafters, and they can have a couple in their deck so that they don't get stuck somewhere where they just aren't doing anything, and they're just drawing off the top of their deck. But I am also skeptical of how many I include, because I think once you have a ton of them, it just becomes too much redundancy, and they don't work well in multiples, generally speaking. That's true. I mean, it depends on what they are. Obviously, if you have multiple cards that just have a, you know, d doesn't have, it just costs sink, yeah. a, some mana to do a thing. If you have literally two of the same card, the second one is completely redundant, just doesn't do anything. But if you have different kinds of mana sinks, the opportunity to say like, well, basically now I'm not just dealing with what's in my hand. I'm also dealing with a bunch of potential activated abilities on the board. I think that there is interesting space there with, with a lot, but, but I agree that there is some, there's some negative synergy there. Yeah. Which also can be part of an interesting draft experience, though, to know that there's diminishing margins on a particular kind of effect. There were also a lot of cards in this set that seem to look at the top of your deck. That, this was something I really felt in the games. It's just <laughs> right. so often somebody's like, oh, look at the top six cards of my library. And it's like, Did, have we always been doing that this much? Yeah, it's a couple domain payoffs that look at the top end cards of your library yeah, for yeah. domain cards. And then other just regular scry or look at the top cards, get a card of this type effects that are in the set. Which I do think that they are... I've felt them in the past, let's say, four years, when possible, leaning away from search your entire library for something to instead search the top of your library for something, which 
to me has the big advantage of not shuffling. Uh, yeah, which, I think that's a that's a really key difference, uh, and just from like a logistics and gameplay experience. Which is not the it's not my chief concern when I'm designing my cube environments. But for example, in my starter decks, I don't want any shuffling. Uh, if you've ever watched somebody that's never played with sleeved trading cards before try and shuffle the deck, it's very painful. It's very they feel they're embarrassed because they don't know what to do. So I just I and don't if want you're any shuffling, shuffling sleeved cards for the first time. If you're just getting into Magic, you're doing great, and it, it's it's fine just to watch you shuffle. Just smush just, them together. Uh, so because of that I don't have any shuffle effects in those uh, decks and it's very interesting to me to try and find alright here's an effect I really want in this deck that requires shuffling can I find an equivalent effect or similar effect that can at least play the same role that doesn't require a shuffle and so I like seeing more cards like this for those kinds of reasons because if you're a cube designer that is trying to avoid shuffling having more of these effects that are instead look at the top end cards uh, I think is a great design resource to have access to I do think that balance is also kind of nice, the the space in between Demonic Tutor. It's just, you know, a lot of times if you're playing Demonic Tutor, you're going to be getting the, the same card every time. Uh, so having something that's in between just random effect, I'll draw a card, hopefully it works. Some security of I'm going to be able to filter and find a creature, filter and find a removal spell, but it's not going to be guaranteed and you're going to get a little bit of variance. Uh, I think that is an improvement to me just from a, a gameplay experience. Yeah, that's true. It's you know a little bit exciting to be like, ooh, am I going to hit my big bomb? Not like, I'll go get my big bomb every time, which is you know right, not yeah, as yeah. fun. It's also worth noting, we see at least one card in this set that has my personal favorite new take on these kinds of cards, which basically allows you to, if you fail to find, just draw a card. It has a fail state that is not, oops, you whiffed, right, right. get punished forever. It just lets you cantrip if you didn't find the thing you're looking for, the thing the card is seeking, which I think is a, is a huge improvement to that from a design perspective. And I'd love to see them do that on every version of this effect moving forward, personally. There is a very recognizable cycle that I think is going to become pretty iconic in this set, which is the Defilers. There is a creature in each color that is a Phyrexian and has an effect that essentially allows you to replace one of the mana symbols of that creature's color in all future permanent spells you cast with two life instead. The rules text is kind of clunky, but basically you are turning white mana symbols into Phyrexian mana symbols on your future white permanents, except I didn't realize the first Anthony, you're only doing that for the first white mana symbol on each permanent yeah, card. Yeah, just one. You can't do it for a white, white. Yes, yeah, so you can't pay four life for your white, white spell. It's only right. white and two life and whatever other generic And cost. only permanents. And only these permanence. creatures are all starting at four mana. I think is the cheapest one. They're four, five, and you know, four and five drops, basically. This is a very cool effect. I love the idea of basically turning your mana symbols into Phyrexian mana symbols. I think they have perhaps very wisely, been very safe in how they've actually implemented this to prevent it from being broken by adding all of these riders. You can't pay for multiple pips with a life. You can't do this on non-permanent spells, and you have to stick this fairly expensive creature before you get access to this effect. Right, so you can't just put uh, Dismember in your mono green deck and expect to pay the life. You do actually need to have whatever color and be able to cast one of these big creatures first. Which, that is good. I, I will... I think you and I will both agree that Phyrexian Mana in its original implementation was a huge mistake. It was a little bit of a mistake, yeah. It was a huge mistake. And we were actually talking last night, you mentioned this thing, which I'd never thought of, which is just, why didn't they make the generic mana the Phyrexian Mana on the Phyrexian Mana symbols? Like, Yeah, because I mean, one of the big issues is it just breaks the color pie. You can put this removal spell into your deck in a color that really shouldn't, quote unquote, have the access to that kind of effect. Why didn't they just say it costs like black, black and a Phyrexian mana, and you know you could add a mixture or of Phyrexian mana, Phyrexian mana, black, sure, you know, yeah, for just in this member's case, yeah. There's, I mean, 
this is down like a whole rabbit hole, but it also it's just so weird that they made uh, these Phyrexian mana symbols of all colors, so that the only way to distinguish them is by looking at that color. And so for accessibility, they had to add separate rule reminder text to each one so you knew which kind of Phyrexian mana symbol it was. It's right. just such a weird way that they originally designed it. Right, it's a small detail, but you know, the mana symbols are visually distinct even if you are looking at it through a black and white lens. So it doesn't matter how colorblind somebody is, they can still see the mana symbol and know what to pay. Right. The Phyrexian mana symbol through that black and white same. filter is completely identical, so they have to actually write out in the rules text on each card, like, by the way, that's blue, even though you can't <laughs> tell it's blue. This is a blue card, and that's actually an island. Yeah, I don't know why that is. I'm sure we could dig up some old episode of Drive to Work and figure out how that happened, but I had never thought of that option, and in hindsight, it seems like that would have been so much of a better way to introduce the Phyrexian mana mechanic than replacing colored mana symbols with it and printing mental misstep and disfigure. Like, what? It's wild. So anyway, I think it's very you cool, mean, very flavorful. Uh, dismember. Dismember. Did I say Disfigure? Dis disfigure. Oh, whatever. Dismember, okay. Disfigure. Leave it in. I think it, these cards are very, very cool. They, they are like by far the coolest cards in the set. Like You see one in your pool and you're like, oh, this card is just so sick. It's like really, really awesome. So I think they're really good candidates for splashy, Baneslayer-y cards, like just big threats that uh, you're really dangerous to let your opponent untap with in... Uh, in, in certain cube environments and uh, i think we'll see a lot of cube designers that are interested in playing with them just because they are so cool yeah i really appreciate sort of trying to reverse engineer and understand the the design process of these cards and i feel like we can feel it very clearly where it's like we're trying to bring back this feel of the phyrexians coming back we want this and the phyrexian mana is very flavorful the idea of i'm exchanging life i'm using my life force as a resource is very that's cool also to so black it's so weird to let any other color do that that's to me. true well the but the phyrexians uh are breaking the color pie that is true. <laughs> it's, it's their fault <laughs> the phyrexians are the color pie violators of the multiverse exactly uh i, th I think that's absolutely true and so I, I like that they they definitely wanted to bring back that very resonant mechanic bring back that that flavor of it and figure out a way to do that in a way that just mechanically and from a gameplay perspective works a lot better so they're pretty cool yeah you can definitely feel the the different writers on there though that it was a challenge yeah, to balance the, reading these cards is not the greatest read it's a little bumpy and you know again power level totally aside because you can put this in a cube where this card is good or bad you have total control over the power level just from a pure design perspective these would have been so much cleaner if they just said your green mana symbols can be phyrexian mana symbols instead uh and for all the reasons that they're not that you can't cast non-permanent spells that you can't use it on more than one mana pip per spell those things are probably important for the balance of the game at large but they do make this a little too finicky for my tastes i think yeah i agree even though they're just so cool. Uh, the illustrations on some of these are also fantastic. Dripping with cool. But yeah, it's also funny how the the design of mechanics works, where we have five of these that clearly are doing the same thing. Like That's more than we have of stun mechanic. cards. <laughs> it's almost twice as many as we have of stun cards. But, you know, again, there's a lot of different things that go into the design of this game. And uh, one of them is just, like, using complexity and perceived complexity as a resource. Stun counters are something they're going to want to bring back and do a bunch in all kinds of sets. It's a flexible thing that has lots of design space. A big creature that gives you one Phyrexian mana for your permanent spells. Maybe that's not quite as flexible design space. They're yeah, gonna expect and they're obviously use. all that rare because they're complicated and powerful. So I feel like these should have been mythic, just from a, a power yeah. level and flavor perspective. It would be cool if they were pushed a little harder and also mythic. Yeah, I wow, agree. you want them to be pushed more? I I do. I mean, I just said okay. I feel like the all the riders make these uh, like they take the cool factor and make it like less fun and cool. To be honest, I agree with that. So, yeah. I'll be interested to see. I feel like they have been very conservative with these. I don't think any of these are going to be players in Constructed, is my gut feeling. But we'll see if, uh, if these actually are riding the edge of power level and will actually be standard viable. 
All right, short episode this week, but those are the mechanics of Dominar United. We will have longer episodes coming to you for the other two set review episodes. As a reminder, our survey is up on luckypaper.co slash survey slash DMU. Check the show notes if you want to see it. Go to our homepage. It'll be a big banner at the top. Fill that out for us. We're looking for all responses within the next week from the airing of this podcast. So uh, get on that as soon as you hear this. Don't forget. And again, you can send voice memo hot takes to mail at luckypaper.co or drop them to me on Discord or Twitter. That will also work and will include your voice in the community set review episode. Anything else you got to say about Dominar United's mechanics, Anthony? I don't think so. I mean, I'll just say again that the scale matters. Like, we're talking about all these mechanics as though they're the same thing. There are 45 kicker cards compared to the three stun counter cards. So that's really what I'm excited about. And uh, I'm really excited to try some of those cards in my cube. Yeah, in terms of raw material for new cube projects or new battle box projects, there is a lot more raw kicker material there than there is stun counter material. But I'm thrilled by that mechanic. I can't wait to see. I want to see the first mythic with stun counters, you know, put it on it. I, I can't It's going it. to be stunning. You know, I, I like to talk about, it's going to be stunning, is what you said. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I like to talk about game from a, from a mechanical perspective, but I also, I like to see the totally push versions. What are they going to do that's going to be uh, the push version of a stun mechanic? I'm just imagining like a tapper. 25 stun counters. <laughs> I'm imagining a creature tapper that uh, taps the thing down and puts a stun counter on it. That's kind of, that's the thing. It's extremely messed up. Over time, you could just slowly tap everything down and you don't have to like balance it and juggle it. It's probably pretty annoying to play with, but I'll shot in port, but put the stun counter on the lands. Look, oh. I'm over here having bad Ooh. ideas, folks. That's it for this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. Before I have any more bad ideas, thank you for tuning in. All the music on the show is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. And this show is produced by Anthony and I building a whole podcast studio in my basement just to make a good podcast for you. So you're welcome, everybody. That was great. I'm so impressed. You did such a great job. Is it also my office where I work every day for my job that pays me money? Yes, but I'm going to say we did it all for you, listener. 